The Energy Gang is brought to you by Keiko New Energy, the fastest-growing solar inverter company in the Americas. Keiko has been in business for more than 100 years and has been making superior German-quality PV inverters since the 1990s. In fact, it's been manufacturing many of them right in San Antonio, Texas since 2013. With a wide range of residential, commercial, and utility-scale inverters, Keiko works with developers and installers in every corner of the solar market, making it the preferred brand across the U.S. and throughout the Americas. Learn more about Keiko's superior quality and service at keiko-newenergy.com. That's keiko, K-A-C-O-newenergy.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. We're on week seven of the Trump presidency. For the last four months or so since the election, we've been stalwart in our views that things are not as bad as they seem, that despite the contradictions and confrontations, clean energy will emerge unscathed because it is unstoppable. And that may well be true. But it's impossible to ignore how quickly Trump's team has worked to unwind the country's environmental policy. As more details emerge, it's becoming clear that this is not a team devoted to a traditional conservative approach to environmental protection or a thoughtful redesign of top-down regulations. It is a team intent on burning them to the ground. We were once warned by Peter Thiel to take Trump seriously, but not take him literally. It is now time to take him literally. And that's our topic of conversation to start. The impending reversal of climate, fuel, and efficiency regulations, new staff with no background in the sectors their agencies govern, and across-the-board budget cuts. And then we're going to shift over to some bellwether business activity in the solar industry. What does AES's acquisition of leading developer S-Power say about the health of America's utility-scale solar sector? We'll end with a discussion about why electricity prices in Ontario, Canada have skyrocketed. Who exactly is to blame? As always, I'm joined by Catherine Hamilton in D.C. and Jigger Shaw in New York City. Hello, Catherine. Hi, it's beautiful here in this incredibly springtime town. You say it's always beautiful there. Every every week it sounds like springtime there, but yet when you read the news coming out <laughs> of D.C., it sounds like friend. it sounds Climate like Mordor. <laughs> no, that doesn't mean I don't already feel 150 years old seven weeks in, though. I feel 150 years old just preparing for this week's show. Uh, Jigger, how are you? How are things in New York? I'm feeling very young and chipper. You sound it. You sound it. Well, get ready. Let's uh, apply that energy to this week's show. So we were expecting this announcement from the White House on rolling back auto fuel standards and the crown jewel, the clean power plan. It appears that the focus on rolling back Obamacare has stalled that plan until next week. But Evan Lehman of e News broke a story today, Thursday, on the coming executive order which will instruct the government not to defend it in court and end the clean power plan without any replacement. So we'll talk a bit about that. Kudos to Evan for breaking that story. There's a lot else to consider as well. Since we last talked about Trump, his administration has proposed slashing EPA's budget 25% and dismantling 38 EPA programs, including Energy Star. E, uh, reports suggest that DOE's Office of Renewables and Efficiency could get a haircut by $700 million dollars or even up to a billion and a half dollars, according to some rumors. And finally, there's a lot of news dribbling out about new hires at EPA and DOE. People who come from the furthest reaches of the conspiratorial, climate-denying right, and 
who in some cases have zero experience with the agencies they're helping run. And also this today, right before we started recording, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt said on live television that he does not believe that carbon dioxide is a driver of climate change. We have known about the role of CO2 in atmospheric warming for over 100 years. Where to start with all of this? God knows what will happen during this recording. I guess we start with the money, right? Um, Catherine, a lot of speculation about budget cuts, some, some leaked information on budget cuts, still a ton of unknowns, but we do know one thing for sure. White House proposals are far from the final word in this process. Yes, absolutely. Think of the budget as a political document. So just to, in, as, to put this in perspective, Obama's last budget proposed a $10 a gallon tax on oil to fund a clean energy transportation system. Never happened. But it's a political statement about what he thinks is important. So when you think about that, this definitely in all of these agency cuts are statements about what is important and what their priorities are. The issue is, as opposed to the case with Obama, because Congress does write the budget and write the appropriations bills. So it, it never turns out that the president's request is what Congress comes out with. But normally, the president's request has agencies advocating for their own programs. And in this case, the agencies are advocating against their programs because they want to cut them. So what it means is that others are going to have to, Congress is either going to have to take it upon themselves to advocate for those programs in the appropriations process or groups from the outside are going to do that. And in a lot of cases, these agency programs are, you know, some of them are public-private partnerships, but not all of them are. A lot of this is just, these are government programs that are important to keep going, but don't necessarily have some kind of big industrial constituency behind them. So that's where the rubber hits the road. Congress is going to push back a lot on this, and yet the agencies are not going to be advocating for their programs. The EPA cuts seem to be probably the most devastating. A 25% cut would amount to over $6 billion dollars. And it would shave off things like coastal community protection. It would get rid of Energy Star, which would be privatized or just shoved out altogether without any sort of transition. There's like a lot of stuff in here that's not just being like phased down, but would be completely canceled out. Yeah, and these are really popular programs. I mean, Energy Star, most people when they go shopping for appliances say, you know, where's the Energy Star label? Where do I get my appliance? I mean, that's been a really popular program. One thing that um, the administrator Pruitt does like, he, he does like the Brownfields program and the Superfund program. And um, so those are some potential opportunities because those do those funding pools do provide grants for technology innovation. So there may be some way to do some interesting technology innovation through through those programs if he decides not to give those as much of a haircut. On the DOE side, the numbers that are being floated around are between seven hundred million and like one point three, one point four billion cuts at the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. You could look at that a couple of different ways. One is that it hampers this transition and a lot of the good work that's being done at DOE. Another way of looking at it, which is what some people have expressed within DOE, is that, boy, we thought we would get zeroed out. So a $700 million or even a billion dollar cut wouldn't be so bad. <laughs> Goes to show you what kind of expectations the administration has set. Jigger, any commentary on EPA or DOE budgeting that you've um, that you've been thinking about? I mean, I've taken the point of view that I just don't, I, I don't process or engage this information. It's just so stupid and 
This president basically puts it out there, I think, mostly just to get headlines all day and get people to chase their tails. And I'm going to wait and see what the sausage making process in Congress actually reveals. My sense is that there's a tremendous amount of support for a lot of these programs within the Republican side of the Congress. I think when you look at the Affordable Care Act replacement that Paul Ryan put out, I think it was deliberately uh, constructed to fail um, because he knows he can't fix Obamacare. Um, And then they're going to go to tax reform. And so I want to see what they do in tax reform. But I just think that all this commentary around EPA and DOE and this, that and whatever else, when this president clearly has a screw loose, is just not worth my time. <laughs> well, uh, that would that would be admitting that the podcast itself is not worth your time. So let's see. No, if no, we that's can not true. I ourselves. think there's real news, <laughs> and then there's like this made up stuff that Donald Trump puts out every week or every morning on his Twitter feed, just to make people sort of like run around crazy. You know, I just think that the notion that you're going to have somebody who like, you know, G. Michael Brown from Carson's campaign, who's in DOE, who was basically at Chesapeake Energy before that, um, you know, like is going to say, well, let's get rid of all this stuff. Maybe he will. But, you know, like my sense is that he won't. And when you hear about like all the stuff we heard about Proterra and electric buses and how fast they're moving, you know, there's a lot of Republican-led municipalities around the country that want access to those electric buses. And all the support that they need is going to come out of the Clean Cities program, which, guess what, is in EERE. So my sense is, is that when they dig deeper into what programs are actually cutting, they're going to realize, actually, a lot of the mayors that, you know, are on the Republican side of the ledger, you know, use these programs. A couple things there. First, Trump does put out trial balloons and often does try to float ideas um, either to see how people react or to distract from something else. But the budget stuff that we've seen doesn't seem to be coming from Trump himself or his aides. There are definitely leaks to reporters that seem more damaging than not. Um, they're, they, they're definitely like not coming from Trump or his very close aides. They don't seem to be like a distraction. Let's put it that way. Well, they're coming from OMB, which is a complete distraction. I mean, I don't, we don't think know exactly from, where they're coming from. Well, they're coming from people working on the budget. They're not coming from Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, who are the two people who care, who matter. Right. So my point being, I don't think that they're necessarily a distraction from Trump. My other point is that there are a ton of new people who are coming into these agencies now, and they are starting to learn about what these agencies actually do. And the positive take from people who work there, who are staffers who've been there for a couple of decades throughout administrations, are that once people start learning about what happens, the need to cut uh, diminishes. And I think that's probably most commonly felt at DOE, because folks who've come in there recently look around and realize, oh, this isn't a regulatory agency. Like, this is an organization that hands out grants and works directly with the private sector to help with projects. So my my feeling is that like, or, or the feelings of others is that there's a real perception issue here and that maybe some of these big draconian cuts that we're hearing about may not materialize as people learn more about agencies. Now, I think, again, that's more true for like DOE than it is at EPA. Yeah, and it depends on how intellectually curious these folks are. So a lot of people probably don't remember back in the Reagan days when he... Um, 
He had a secretary of energy named James Watt. And while Watt may sound like an electrical term to people, he was actually a dentist. So it was one of those situations where they put somebody in charge that had nothing, had no knowledge of the agency at all. Um, He did put people in the lower positions who did understand about electricity and about energy and everything else that DOE does. But part of the issue is that the people who are coming into DOE on all levels, and these are not political appointees, they're political appointees, but they're not, they don't have to be confirmed by the Senate. Um, They don't know anything. And I've heard that people sit in rooms and one of the questions was, well, like, where is the research and development? Where the, you know, where do you do the work? Like they actually thought that inside Department of Energy building were laboratories. So they did not even realize that there were national labs. And, And that's what worries me is this just unbelievable lack of understanding of what how everything works and where it's done and you hope that they will learn and they'll want to and they'll go out to the labs I very much worry about the labs and all of that you know intellectual brain power we have out there to make sure that these folks actually see what's going on and that it does relate to real life and real jobs yeah this is actually probably a more important and immediate conversation because the budgets are relatively speculative They are just sort of a political document, and it will be more interesting to see what happens in Congress. But now positions are getting filled at EPA and DOE, and many of the people who are coming into those positions have zero experience with the agencies that they're helping run. ProPublica yesterday released a list of the hundreds of beachhead appointees Um, that have come into Department of Education, Department of Interior, Energy, EPA. Um, And if you look through the list, many of them not just don't have backgrounds in uh, uh, environmental protection or in energy or whatever it is that they're working on, many of them are coming from like the Breitbart wing of the Republican Party. They're just like hardcore conspiracy theorists. For example, on the transition team is a guy, Steve Malloy, who runs JunkScience.com, a climate denial blog that I follow. And um, at DOE, there are a bunch of new appointees who've come in. um, And if you look through the list, you go through their backgrounds. Many of them have zero experience in energy. Uh, In fact, in late February, Eric Trump's brother-in-law, who has no experience in energy, was given a position at DOE. And uh, reportedly from people who are at DOE, he's just kind of floating around. He has no position. He doesn't have like anything official to do yet. They're they're throwing in people who have been supportive, uh, political supporters of Trump, uh, not because they have any experience, but because they've been supporters of Trump. Well, but that's normal par for the course stuff, right? I mean, look, I want to I I am not suggesting for a moment that this transition or these first hundred days has been normal in any way. But, you know, putting in people who actually helped get you elected is is par for the course. Okay, definitely. Yes. And there are plenty of political appointees who don't have direct experience. What is different about many of these appointees is that they are either actively campaigning against and hostile to the agencies that they're coming into, or they come from a very bizarre conspiratorial wing of the Republican Party. Now, I'm not trying to paint every person in the Trump transition team with that brush. I want to be very careful, but there are a lot of examples of this. And the ProPublica uh, reporting that we've seen in the last day shows that this is a 
pretty interesting trend within the Trump beachhead team. There is something very materially different here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember working at DOE and having the Schedule C's coming in, and they were all very enthusiastic and interested. They may not know all the stuff about how everything worked, but they were interested in learning about it. Um, so they, they had an interest in energy and certainly where I was working in clean energy. Um, so it seems a little different now when you have like a massage therapist coming in. <laughs> Look, I mean, I think that in general um, that Trump got elected based on the fact that a lot of, you know, his base was tired of Republicans basically tacking to the center um, after they got elected. Right. I mean, that's basically what people accuse Bush and Cheney of doing. And, you know, and so it's not surprising to me that they brought a bunch of crazy people in to try to get them to stick to their campaign promises. Now, you know, a lot of those campaign promises were stupid. And so hopefully they don't actually make it through the Congress and budgets and that kind of stuff. The one thing I did want to talk about was Energy Star. I'm like increasingly thinking that it might be a good idea to cut Energy Star. It just feels like something that could be done by the private sector better. Go on. Well, I just think that like the government has done a lot to promote Energy Star. It's great. And the budgets are huge. But when you think about the testing regime that can be done by UL, you think about nonprofits that could actually bring this forward, like ACEEE or NRDC that helped with the cable box. A lot of this stuff could be done in the private sector. You could have a lighting trade association that did Energy Star products for them and appliance folks that did that. And then you could even see California taking it over and actually turning it into a Japanese style top runner program where actually only the top 10, you know, most efficient products get promoted. And so that you really get radical innovation on the efficiency side, as opposed to the incremental stuff we're getting now. Yeah, you need somebody, though, to connect the dots. So whether that's government or an NGO, you do need an organization that feeds, you know, feeds the new research into the standards out into the deployment program. So you need somebody to connect the dots, but I guess it doesn't have to be the government. Right. And that's an interesting point, Jigger. And and I think this is why we can't think about all these cuts in the same way. You know, when I outlined the 38 programs at EPA that would be cut, and you, you can't just like think of them all as the same importance. So there probably are a lot of interesting roles that the private sector can play that maybe we're not thinking about because we've always They've always been government programs. Um, I'm very open to that. And that's the sort of sensible um, policy making that we need to see more of. So cutting isn't always a bad thing. Um, what is different is just saying that we're going to slash our climate satellite program without any other plan. Um, we're going to decimate um you know many of the programs that protect coastal communities from overfishing from acidification from sea storm surges there are a lot of things that are very central to the government's role that probably wouldn't be as effective in the private sector but there are a lot of other stuff that maybe we need to think a lot more creative creatively about so that's the kind of conversation i want to be having and i'm afraid that like we're not having that conversation. Yeah. And if you do have that conversation of transferring and transitioning from government to an, a non-governmental um, role, you need to have a transition period. You can't just cut it off at the knees and expect it to survive. But don't you think that the that that's what's going to happen? I mean, do you really think that, that 
there are no Republican congressmen and senators that support Energy Star? Oh, no, I think there are a lot who support Energy Star. So so I'm assuming that that transition will happen. Like, this is what I'm saying. Like, I honestly think this White House has no idea what it's doing. I think when you look at the tweets that Donald Trump put out in 2012 or 2011 or 2010, like, it's literally exactly the same pattern. They just haven't learned how to run a White House. But I don't think the Congress is going to make the same mistake. Well, let's hope so. I hope there are a lot of champions that are going up there now and making sure that these folks hear the message. Well, we have to see whether the strategy of having all these Republican congressmen on the Alliance to Save Energy Board has actually like, you know, worked for the last 30 years. So here we are. We're punting again to the congressional sausage making. And we are probably all in agreement that Congress will not agree to the draconian cuts that the White House is floating. Um, so once again, folks, we find ourselves in a wait-and-see holding pattern. However, uh, let's get to some other news. What did you guys think about the seeming conflict reported by the New York Times about what to do about the Paris Climate Agreement? It sounds like Rex Tillerson's State Department is supportive of staying in the Paris Climate Agreement and that many of Trump's aides want to see the U.S. quickly walk away from it. And naturally, we have Ivanka and Jared Kushner in the middle, who are advocating and um, bending the president's ear, but seemingly not getting anywhere. Um, anyway, there's just like an interesting internal fight about the Paris Climate Agreement. So there's this push-pull there. Yeah, I mean, one thing is that one thing that Tillerson really knows is that if he were to do that, we would be in an extreme competitive disadvantage globally. So I think whereas some of the DOE funding issues or EPA funding is kind of a drip, 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 this one would be big and it would send a signal and everybody would start shifting to working with China. I mean, it would just that would have an immediate negative impact. Yeah, well, it makes complete sense, right? I mean, if you're not part of an agreement and you're shouting from the sidelines, then you really have no influence. Right. I mean, if you're in the in the meeting and in the room, even if you disagree with what's going on, then you have a lot more influence. Mark Morano of Climate Depot, one of the more influential climate denial bloggers, um, came out and said that he thinks that Rex Tillerson is the biggest impediment to getting the uh, U.S. to walk away from the, the Paris Climate Agreement. I thought that was interesting. I think, Stephen, like the Paris Agreement is, first of all, a non-issue, right? I don't think that this is even top 20 on Trump's list. But even if it was on his list, I don't think that I don't think they're going to exit the Paris Agreement. First of all, they can't, right? All they can do is say negative things about it. The Paris Agreement makes it very clear that to exit the agreement takes like three or four years to exit. So they can't exit. So like, I just, I think we are like, you know, we're falling into the trap of talking about Trump all the time. <laughs> it's hard to ignore. I mean, there's just endless stuff to talk about. What I'm saying is that there is concrete evidence, given the stamp of approval that this president has given to undoing environmental, climate, and clean energy programs the next logical step would be the Global Climate Agreement. I don't think that's such a far stretch. I think saying that possible impeachment or that his administration will unravel within mo weeks, months, or a year, that's much, much farther stretch. I just think that this notion that, you know, the Paris Agreement is going to fall on its face because Donald Trump and, and Scott Pruitt have some, like, you know, crazy, maniacal, like, sort of hatred for it. I, I mean, I just don't think that's... 
what's going to uh, drive, um, you know, policy. I think even Jeff Immelt from GE is now saying, look, this is affecting our sales and we are losing out sales to international competitors um, because you're saying these kinds of things. I, I just I just think that like your evidence trail, Stephen, like assumes that logic is being employed. And my sense is, is like one day he's going to wake up and Breitbart's going to say something different. And he's going to say, oh, I changed my mind. Let's talk about what we do know. And what we do know is that there's going to be an executive order coming up maybe sometime next week to dismantle the clean power plan. And essentially, according to this story from Evan Lehman at e News, the government will just tell the Department of Justice not to argue in the D.C. District Court for the clean power plan. It instructs the government to end its case. So when what happens after that? Catherine, assuming that that is the plan, basically it just means that enviro groups or groups that are arguing for it need to step up and continue the case? Yeah, states too. There are a lot of friendly states on it. Um, and the environmental groups and anybody else who wants to join it, all those who are parties um, to the case would continue it. The one thing they're not going to be able to do, it would take a a lot of work to do is to reverse the findings about greenhouse gases. So that's still going to be out there and there's still requirements um, to mitigate that. So I I don't know they can slow walk it, they can do nothing, but um, the EPA is required by Massachusetts versus EPA to do something. Yeah. I mean, and we all talked about the fact that the Clean Power Plan was a lowest common denominator anyway. My sense is, is that, you know, the scrapping of the clean power plan basically means that it's possible that a lot of coal plants run for two to five years longer than they should have, um, which costs us, you know, um, thousands of premature deaths, um, which is a big deal. But I don't think that clean that clean energy will be uh, slowed down in any way by the clean power plan um, being scrapped. Um, and I think that coal plants will still die. They'll just die two to five years later. Yes. Going back to the original point that I made and that we have been arguing is um, in within a lot of this, clean energy doesn't get impacted in a huge way. Many of our projections at GTM Research never took the clean power plan into consideration in the first place. So like we, we're predicting pretty strong growth. I think what I'm hearing is that people are starting to worry about what happens at FERC now, now that there are a number of seemingly negative decisions. Um, does FERC become more of a target than people originally thought? Do they start targeting PURPA, which has been huge for supporting utility-scale solar installations? Do they dismantle previous orders that benefit distributed resources and storage? There's much more of a possibility now. And I am hearing from companies that although you know there's still a really strong pipeline of activity, Many of the long-term political concerns are slowing down spending on marketing dollars. They're kind of easing up on some of their investments. There is, there's a little bit of pumping of the brakes. It's not like things are coming to a screeching halt. Activity is still strong, but there's definitely a pumping of the brakes. Well, they tried to kill PURPA in, in, during the Bush administration, right? And, and they failed. So they repealed PUCA, uh, the Public Utilities Holding Company Act, but not PURPA. Um, and so we'll see, you know, I mean, it's not just the clean energy guys who are on the side of PURPA, though. It's also AES and Calpine and all the IPPs, Dynergy, I mean, NRG, all these guys have tons of PURPA contracts. Um, and so, 
So we'll see, you know, who wins the day on on this. I mean, this is this is where you know Tom Kuhn sort of earns his living, right? Over at um, at Edison Electric Institute. I mean, they're they have gone full full throttle against distributed generation and full throttle against PERPA. And we'll see whether he you know can win the day. Yeah, they had. Um... Chairwoman Murkowski of Senate Energy and Natural Resources had pulled anything that had to do with Federal Power Act and PURPA out of the last version of the energy bill just because she thought it was too controversial. But um, there are definitely going to be more runs made at it, especially in the House. This is the moment of the show when we stop the tape and talk about our sponsor, Keiko New Energy. We are grateful to have Keiko as a sponsor. Keiko New Energy is one of the fastest growing inverter companies in the Americas, a result of its commitment to quality, top-notch performance, and state-of-the-art technology. Keiko produces a robust portfolio of inverters for residential, commercial, and utility-scale applications. Leading developers continue to choose Keiko because of its superior engineering and unmatched levels of technical support and customer service. Keiko produces its inverters for the Americas in San Antonio, Texas, where 20% of its employees are U.S. military veterans. Keiko is ready to serve any installer or developer looking to maximize their solar production. You can learn more about Keiko's inverter models and its commitment to quality at keiko-newenergy.com. Thanks for their support. Let's get out of politics for a while. Late last month, the global power giant AES announced its intent to buy up S-Power, one of the top solar developers in the U.S., for $853 million. Full disclosure, Jigger sat on the board of S-Power, and he's mentioned that a few times in the past. This acquisition tells us a few different things. Utilities and independent power producers like AES are gobbling up big developers because they see solar as an important asset class. And this is part of a bigger trend toward acquisitions and investments in distributed energy among global utilities, which we've uh, tracked at GTM Research. Thirdly, it shows how valuable it is to have a strong pipeline of utility-scale projects, since a number of pipelines dried up or shrank a little bit after the ITC surge last year. So, Jigger, who's S-Power, and why would AES want to buy the company? And of course, knowing you sit on the board, let's try to describe them with as much objectivity as possible. But why are they an attractive, an attractive uh, a, a target for AES? Well, um, I mean, so S-Power is, um, is a company that was started by Ryan and Steve, and Steve Kramer, um, the Kramers, particularly Steve, has been in the utility space for a very long time. They started by creating a coal services company and then a nuclear services company um, um, and then sold it and started putting their own money into solar development. Um, you know, I think that the story here is really around private equity, right? So when you think about big finance, the question becomes is, is clean energy um, some a place where TPG, Apollo, Carlisle, you know, all of these sort of big guys, can they actually use their model in clean energy? And S-Power is basically the first major proof point that that model works. And that's why it's such a critical and important transaction. Yeah. So give me, give me an example. Give me a background on that. So, you know, S-Power's story started from uh, Silverado. Right, Silverado is a company led by John Cheney, who got into trouble because Martifer uh, was the investor, and Martifer ended up going bankrupt out of uh, Spain, I think, or Portugal. Um, and so uh, 
Jeff Tannenbaum, who is the principal at Fir Tree Partners, who you know has been really critical, frankly, on the pace financing. He's put a lot of money into um, you know encouraging pace financing and that kind of stuff. He um, invested out of his own family office into uh, Silverado. Separately, he got wind of the fact that S Power was looking to grow, and he invested in S Power, and so he merged the two together. If you remember from Green Tech Media reporting, Silverado had this, had this great strategy of locking up uh, Q positions and um, and substation positions uh, within California, and so you know you had all these Q positions and those kinds of things. And then you had S-Power, who has extraordinary amounts of utility experience, right? right? Steve Kramer had the ability to basically call up the CEO of Southern California Edison or SCAPA or other utilities and say, hey, let's go for a round of golf and let's solve this problem with this PPA or this interconnection or whatever in ways that the elect- the solar developers before really couldn't do, right? And so, so, so when they bought uh, Silverado, the total amount of projects that were ready to be constructed was like 30 to 60 megawatts. But they had all this sort of queue positions and, and other things. And by the time S-Power got through it all, they realized that they basically had on their hands something like 600 or 700 megawatts worth of solar that they could um, build by the end of 2016 because of the queue positions and the favorable stuff that Silverado had done, but couldn't get to the finish line, right? And so it's at that point that Jeff Tannenbaum said, well, crap, I mean, these guys really have an extraordinary opportunity. Let's raise a bunch of money, right? So then he brought his firm, Fertree Capital, um, Fertree Partners, sorry, back into the, the story, raised, you know, almost a billion dollars very quickly uh, from his LPs, and that allowed S-Power to build all these projects, right? They didn't have to go through construction financing and debt financing and tax equity and all that stuff. They could just use this money to build all these projects to beat the 2016 ITC deadline. And, and the, I guess the question is, is the AES acquisition, is that a good fit for S-Power? Is that the appropriate move? So I think um, AES you know, ended up being victorious out of this process, but... The process really started because, you know, Sun Edison went bankrupt. And so um, there were a lot of suitors for Sun Edison's assets. And and because of that, I think, you know, Jeff Tannenbaum over at Fertree decided that um, it was the right time to see if any of these suitors really wanted to look at a an opportunity that was not, you know, damaged. And um, uh, and so he hired Barclays and a few other folks. I think Marathon was involved and a few others. And... and um, and we had like over 50 suitors who sort of looked at the deal. Um, and in the end, there were, you know, a couple of last bidders who were bidding up the assets and um, NAES ended up winning. Um, but the, the main reason why I think this was a, you know, a good deal for AES was, as you guys know, I mean, AES has a long and torturous history of trying to figure out renewables and they haven't been able to find a great team. And so they overpaid for these assets because they... Um, really wanted the development team, and they really wanted a, a new team to be able to mirror the success that they've had in the storage business. Yeah, this I talked to some folks at AES who said, you know, they're looking for long-term U.S. contracts, and the pipeline 
that S Power has is huge. They'll be able to do a gigawatt a year, um, 500 megawatts the you know to start out. But they have a 10 gigawatt growth pipeline. And AES is about 40% coal, but they have 25% renewables now, and they're going to move quickly to a combination of gas, solar, wind, and they've got more experience in storage than anybody else. They've operated 3.5 million megawatt hours to date, and you know they're in a great position to be able to use the capacity that S Power has in their team to be able to not just build in the U.S., but then to expand to where other pl- locations where a- AES has um, has need. And I, I've just heard from a number of people that S Power has a really phenomenal team. It really is. I mean, it's 90 people and doing just amazing work. And it's because S Power really doesn't do development, right? I mean, S Power really takes other people's broken deals and fixes them, right? That's That has been their MO. It hasn't been... Um, doing sort of core early stage development, which um, has been really interesting. Their niche is actually, you know, I think expanding because there are so many early stage developers who run out of cash or run into problems with PPAs or interconnection or whatnot. Yeah, I was going to say it's a good time in the industry to be be doing that. Um, the The pipeline piece is quite interesting to me because when you look at the post ITC extension market, installations in the utility sector are going to fall year over year. Um, there were 10.6 gigawatts in 2016. They're going to fall to like around nine gigawatts this year, according to our GTM research analysts. And I was talking to Colin Smith, who does our utility scale tracker. And he says that installations could fall to around six gigawatts in 2018. And they'll steadily rise through uh, the end of the decade. But basically, S-Power has one of the strongest long-term portfolios. So this gives AES um, really good access to projects, even though a lot of other developers um, and independent power producers are going to have a falling pipeline of projects in the coming years. Yeah, they have like 1.3 gigawatts of 20-year contracts, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, and the other thing that they've got is, um, you know, going for them is that SunPower and FirstSolar are both showing a lot of um, wear and tear. I mean, First Solar has basically said that they're sort of exiting the development business um, and focusing on equipment. And SunPower is, you know, sort of, you know, threatening to do the same. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of weakness from their biggest competitors. Um, so I do think that this is going to end up being a real home run for AES. Um, really good story there for the, our, a solar industry that's been in turmoil. And, um, Speaking of some turmoil, I guess we'll travel up to Ontario now, where electricity prices have been soaring. Since 2002, electricity prices have risen faster than any other commodity in the province. In surrounding provinces, they've risen along with yearly inflation. In Ontario, they've risen by double digits, forcing many rural customers to seek financial help. And it's becoming a bit of a political crisis for Premier Kathleen Wynne, who's had to admit that Not enough was done by power authorities to protect consumers and properly structure the market. So what exactly happened? Well, conservatives are blaming renewables. Liberals are blaming market structure. It is, as usual, very complicated, and it's a good case study for market reform. 
So, Catherine, you've been steeped in this for the last week. What were you doing with officials from Ontario in the first place? Yeah, I was uh, I was up in Toronto for two sets of meetings, um, but one set was with the Energy Minister of Ontario, Glenn Thibault, um, who basically said this is considered the worst job in the government historically. It's just completely thankless. Each minister lasts maybe a year, and then they get kicked out because they can't fix the problem. But um, sort of historically, what happened before 2003 is that the system was really outdated, unreliable. There were brownouts and blackouts. And in summer 2003, there was a big blackout that really forced them to rethink what they were doing. Their demand had gone up by 8% and their generation down by 6%. So it was like, as Thibault said, it was like Niagara Falls going dry, um, which is their, their biggest generating plant. So they switched over to a clean and green generation resources. They modernized their grid. They put 35 billion into cleaner generation and then 16 billion into transmission and distribution upgrades. They got rid of coal. Um, And so the Green Energy Act is what they put into place. And that's been blamed somewhat. But there are a bunch of other factors. One was that it wasn't so much that it wasn't the right policy. It was how it was implemented. So one thing they did was they had a standard offer for renewables and natural gas, peakers and everybody that meant that they would lock in long-term contracts at really high prices with virtually no competition. So that was something that really kept the prices high. So the actual cost of electricity was small, but it was this big other charge for these contracts that has been really, really expensive. Um, the other thing is that, you know, when the recession hit in 2010, um, that also caused, you know, demand to go down. And and again, there was less need for all of these resources. So again, the prices reflected that. Um, since then, they've tried, they've done this large renewable procurement um, that is much cheaper because it is, it, it's pushing competition rather than setting prices at an artificial level. It's not, it's much more technology agnostic and outcome-based. But another thing they're doing is they're really doing, trying to do wholesale market reform. So that's another big piece that they're looking at to try to fix this. It is, it's, it's a long-term prospect. No telling if that government's going to stay in place in the next set of elections. They may be kicked out too, but it looks like they've kind of figured out what the problems are. And um, the, the structure of the contract seems to be like the biggest problem. When, when they tried to phase out coal, they built a couple big natural gas plants as well, right? And those were, those were quite expensive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so now when they're looking at their longer term plan, and they're doing a capacity auction, they're going to look at demand response, storage, efficiency more. Um, they actually are growing um, their advanced manufacturing sector, and their economy has been growing and energy efficiency has been going up, but they need to really have an all source outcome based procurement in order to bring down those prices. Now, it's clear that renewables didn't play like a central role, but they did play a role. According to some data that I saw from the Auditor General, wind and solar and bioenergy, which has been important for helping phase out coal plants, um, they account for about 6% of total electricity, and they account for over uh, 16% of total generation costs. So there is an impact from renewables. Yeah, but it wasn't what they did. It was how they did it. So I think that, you know, it's hard to to pin it on one resource. It's better to pin it on how they how they did it, how, how they executed on it. And that brings us to the Jiggershaw playbook. You got to have volumetric reductions, feed in tariffs in the way they were designed, at least uh, 
seven or eight years ago don't work, right? Competitive auctions. Can't we call it like the Jiggershaw rule? <laughs> yeah, whatever you want. The, the, the Jiggershaw commandment. Somebody add it to my Wikipedia page. The Jiggershaw rule. You know, countries should not have stupid policy. Um, no, look, I mean, Ontario absolutely set themselves up for a fall in multiple ways, right? Number one, they um, had sort of a communist type structure in Canada, which they still have, around hydro, right? They paid off this hydro so long ago, and they basically, you know, roughly have like two cents a kilowatt hour, one cent a kilowatt hour hydro. But instead of what doing British Columbia was doing, which was basically saying, hey, California, pay seven cents for it and subsidize the people living in British Columbia, they said, hey, why don't we liberalize the markets here in Ontario and get everyone to pay, you know, wholesale prices um, to the hydro producers, right? So now the hydro producers were getting two, three times more for their hydropower than they were getting paid before because they had liberalized markets and now they were trading, right? So... They should have known that was going to happen. So, you know, I mean, that's exactly what happened in Maryland when they deregulated the market in Maryland. It's exactly what happened in lots of places where they deregulated. And so it's sort of what it is. I think separately, um, you know, the nuclear coal uh, debate in Ontario has been nothing um, short of confusing. Um, Shutting down the coal plants is fine, but I think the way that they did it was draconian. Um, They shut it off all at once as opposed to like phasing them out over time, like they should have, um, to reduce drainage costs and keep capacity there. Um, and the new nuclear plants that they're building are, of course, you know, over budget. And so then the new premier shut them down, which then led to, you know, shortages of capacity in the future. Um, and, you know, so the whole thing is just one big mess. Um, you know, like, I, I, I don't feel sorry for them, per se, because, they should have known better. I mean, the state of California did the exact same stupid stuff that caused the California electricity crisis in 2001. They signed up to a lot of long-term contracts to try to fill the gap that created the California Power Authority. And, you know, the state of California is still paying off all those, you know, high long-term contracts. Yeah, the people you feel so sorry for are the customers and more particularly the rural customers who are paying uh, hundreds of dollars of more in electricity bills now. And the um the, the 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 program the government program to help people with their bills has just ballooned and i think they, there's been a 20% increase in the last couple of years um there's also a, like a, a a problem with the lack of investment from the early 90s to the early 2000s because um but that was true globally I, right i mean south africa the united states all sorts of people in the 90s thought that like we had reversed gravity and you no longer had to invest in basic infrastructure. So even the U.S. grid was starved of capital for, you know, going on 20 years. Right. Well, but then all of a sudden when the government came in in 2003, when the liberals came in and they noticed that like they had to start investing in infrastructure and then all of a sudden you had to pay for that infrastructure um, and it was woefully inadequate because of a decade of no investment. It's not that it's woefully inadequate. It's that like we told the government of Ontario to do grid edge technologies. We told them exactly what we... Who's we? Like the solar industry, the wind industry, the lobbyists, we said, look, here's all these technologies that will allow you to actually use what New York is now calling REV in Ontario back in 2008, 2009, right? But instead of doing any of that stuff, they said, oh, no, like we have to do exactly the same yeah, mistakes. Yeah, but who believed in that stuff then? They should have. I mean, the the 
when you think about demand response and load control that Enernoc was pitching, or some of the other technologies that folks had that were active, that the PJM was deploying, etc., those were 90% cheaper than what they ended up doing. They ended up spending $16 billion on new grid infrastructure. It was crazy how much money they spent, and they didn't need to spend that money. I mean, we had already done those analyses post the 2003 blackout. We had done the analysis of what was wrong with their grid. Yeah, so I think actually there is a commercial and industrial demand response market. There isn't one yet for residential, but that's probably going to change. I think that's where the greatest opportunity is now. When they start their capacity auctions, I think they're going to include more grid edge technologies in that to allow those to participate much more effectively and also to allow um, solutions for consumers because that's going to be a big deal is giving consumers choices and allowing them to kind of decide how they want to spend their money on energy because right now it's it's not sustainable. I think we need to probably wrap this one up. Oh, Ontario, um, will you get your act together? We'll see. Uh, it seems like there's a major recognition that um, some market reforms need to be put in place. And Catherine, thanks for filling us in on the latest there because it's an interesting case study. So let's tell our listeners something they don't know. And I, I guess we'll go over to you, Catherine. Yeah, so this is something that you guys covered at Green Tech Media, but I don't know that we ever mentioned it on the show, and I was pinged by AES to mention it, which is the Aliso Canyon um, energy storage projects. They're, they're replacing a bunch of their gas generation with 70 megawatts of storage that they're able to put in place in six months. That's like unheard of for any kind of generation. Uh, 20 megawatts from Tesla, 20 megawatts from Greensmith, and 30 megawatts from AES, which I think is the largest battery project in the world. So pretty cool that they were able to do that. And uh, that's been their pitch all along is like we can replace peaker plants. Yeah, look, what's happening in California is going to be a wake-up call for a lot of other states. The fact that utilities can demand these different types of storage projects to fill in gaps in the grid and get it very quickly, a lot of eyes will open up. Uh, Jigger, what's your story? So I just, you know, I don't think this is a new story, but it's definitely been resurfaced again. You know, utilitysecrets.org, which is a great website, um, you know, has more audio of, you know, Edison Electric Institute's um, Director of External Affairs, you know, basically enlisting third parties to help attack rooftop solar, trying to, you know, bring more highlighting of the three or four, you know, complaints about, you know, sort of better business bureau stuff and, and others. And, and so I think that, you know, it's important to note that the Edison Electric Institute, you know, is actually deciding to proactively hurt distributed generation in a way that's not covert anymore, but actually is official policy of EEI. And I think that's a huge problem because I think it it means that the utilities in the United States have basically decided that becoming prosumer and doing all the things that we've suggested they need to do based on the example of Germany has been lost on them. And instead, what they're going to do is actually just fight it tooth and nail and see if they can win where Germany failed. But they're not monolithic, right? I mean, aren't there some utilities that are going to take a different approach? Yeah, but I'm not going to give, you know, like them credit unless they actually, you know, leave Edison Electric Institute. So if they say we're going to lose our we're going to, you know, protest Edison Electric Institute by not giving them money anymore, then I'll give them credit. But for them to say, well, we're doing great things by ourselves, but, you know, our trade association is trying to undermine solar. You know, I'm not giving them credit for that. There's a big difference between somehow how some of these individual utilities act and how EEI acts. And there's 
probably a lot of pressure bubbling up from many of these utilities. The question is, how strong is that pressure? And would they be willing publicly to differ with that strategy if they say they're as progressive as they say they are? So I think we'll have to work on getting the right utility who's a member of EEI to talk about this in a candid way. Good conversation. Well, there's a list of them. They're on SEPA's board, and I've been railing against all of them on SEPA's board. <laughs> and I'm sure they've, I'm sure they've heard it. <laughs> all right, I was poking around for some good news as I was talking to people and reading so much about Trump. And what do you know? I read a Dave Roberts column at Vox, who's still one of my favorite writers, and he had this great piece on um, a new report and tally on bike sharing in the U.S., and it's pretty remarkable how much bike sharing has taken off. So there were 328,000 rides, bike share rides, in 2010 in the U.S., and last year there were 28 million rides. And in 2010 there were four, just four bike share systems across the country, and now there are 55 and counting in 2016. So between 2020 2010 and 2016, there were 88 million total bike share trips. And uh, I just think that's a remarkable statistic, how quickly bike sharing has taken off. It's it's the combination of people getting used to the service, um, better city planning, and the use of mobile phones to connect and pay for these bicycles. It's the convergence of a number of really good factors that will not let up. Well, and the leadership of Gabe Klein. I don't know Gabe Klein. I mean, Gabe basically did most of these bike sharing programs. He was head of DOT at um, in D.C., put it in place there, and then he took that technology and put it into Chicago. He also was the consultant who put it in place in New York. Um, and so my sense is there's nobody who deserves more credit for getting it done than Gabe Klein. I think that's the show. Um, we'll call it at that. And as usual, you can access all of our episodes um, at any app of your choice. You know, we got it on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, NPR One. I personally use Overcast. Um, there are a ton of apps out there that are really good. And so whatever you choose, you can use that. Now, we have a sister podcast called The Interchange that you can listen to as well. Shale and I wonk out about one particular subject each week. And you'll find that at greentechmedia.com. We want to hear from you. We always love hearing from our listeners. Uh, our email is podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Due to a high volume of email, uh, we prefer Twitter messaging, and we can interact with you on a more immediate basis. So our Twitter handles are all there on the Energy Gang Twitter page, and uh, you can find us on the Energy Gang. Feel free to tag us all, debate with us, ask us questions, give us story ideas. We love to interact with folks. With Jiggershaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you all next week.